0: Hi, good people, and welcome to Black Women in Wellness, a podcast amplifying the voices of Black women working to create wellness in their communities. I'm your host and the creator of the series, Rachel Heath. And it's April, which means it is National Poetry Month. And I am so excited to share our Black Wellness Woman for the month of April, because this person is an amazing Black woman, not just poet, but also artist that I had the pleasure of working with a few years back. So this National Poetry Month feature is Dee Collin. Dee Collin is a poet and dream chaser holding degrees in English and Africana studies. She is the author of Dreaming in Creole and Said the Swing to the Hoop. One of NY Capital Region creatives under 40 in the collaborative, she is also an NYS Writers Institute VONA and Cave Canem Fellow, and I actually met D. Collin in our workshop at VONA and found her to be an amazing, passionate, and ambitious artist who just have a has a love for the arts and also for serving her community. So D. Collin uses poetry, performance, and paint to inspire, empower, and educate communities through creative writing workshops, theater, and visual art. She also runs Empress Bohemia, her own line of wearable art, which mainly showcases her hand-painted wood earrings. I am so excited to share this conversation with Column with you. For many of us, our wellness comes from artistic endeavors and she hits so many of them, writer, actor, visual artist. So we're gonna talk about art and healing today and how we as black women can tap into that source Um, as a way to bring wellness into our lives. So here's our conversation. So I always like to give my guests an opportunity to introduce themselves in their own words. So what what words would you use to describe what you do in the world?
1: a poet um well if i'm describing what i do in the world i create art and i uh create spaces for other people to create art um and um that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways so um the way that it does the most is through poetry uh, but i also do theater and I also paint and make things, uh, so it art manifests in a number of different ways in my life. But I'm an
0: artist. Yeah, I, I, I love that you're so multifaceted and how your art manifests itself because I have that same kind of multifaceted, I would say, portfolio. And I think people who are creative, it it, it has lots of different channels that it can, you know, move through, and. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on was it's National Poetry Month, but I've also been really wanting to have conversations about how art is a tool for wellness. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you use your artistry as a way to bring wellness to your community.
1: Well, I know for myself personally, writing has done a lot for me um, and my healing journey um that's part of the reason why poetry has lasted so long in my life i started writing when i was 11 and uh i was i had an outlet to you know express myself especially in times when i felt lonely um or i was confused about something or i was unpacking some big idea and all through high school, it, it helped me to get through things as well, you know, dealing with trauma. And even now when I'm writing, sometimes I'm unpacking traumatic experiences and what that means and where I'm at now in my healing process. So because it's been so powerful in that way for myself, um, I, I find it, I'm compelled to create those kinds of spaces for other people. Um, and so I teach workshops and uh, facilitate spaces, open mics, you know, where people can gather and we can talk and we can share our stories. And um, in sharing our stories, I think you know, the audience is always having a conversation with whatever's going on on stage, or if we're in a workshop, we're in the circle and we're sharing our stories together, um, people find out that they're not alone. Um, and they find out that, you know, there are a lot of things that we have in common that we don't necessarily talk about. And um, they also uh, find power in in telling stories that we've, you know, maybe been conditioned to hush, be be on the hush about, like those are things that we don't talk about. Um, And that's powerful, you know, because it gives people back their voice. And um, I think that, you know, in healing, you have to be able to say what happened, um, but then also you need to be able to reclaim what was taken from you, and uh, that that's a that's a thing that art gives me all the time.
0: Yeah, and I think those safe spaces for being able to create are so incredibly important, especially in our formative years and so many of us people of color don't have those spaces in the home but we can find them say in a writing workshop or on a sports team or maybe in the choir or maybe in the theater and so I'm wondering you said you started your writing journey at the age of 11 where did you find like safe spaces to be a creative person was that your home was that some other programs in your school what did that look like for you
1: it was home in my room (laughs) <laughs> uh, when I had a room I didn't always have my own room um but yeah it was it was mostly at home uh with a notebook and a pen or a piece of paper and colored pencils or um you know I had a, a pink composition notebook that I was writing ghost stories and I was like making up my own stories uh so, and then I had other notebooks where I was writing down what was happening in my life um is so it was always home I think that you know there there is in my journey as an educator um I've seen like that there is there are so many opportunities for people to find spaces um and I didn't necessarily have that as a kid you know uh, I have very strict parents uh and they're you know they're immigrants and you know, had a lot of uh, responsibility at home in translating things. Um, And after school programs wasn't a thing that they were into. (laughs) So I skipped all of that. And uh, whatever experience I had with other kids, it was during the school day at school. Um, And any other interaction I had with kids were kids who were in my family. So cousins, um, and I'm—I have no siblings, so you know it was that's that's why I named loneliness first um, because that was something I had to always unpack. Was you know I'm very alone. I'm here with these two adults, and I have to make up my own space and figure out my own voice in that. Um, because I go into after-school programs, I go into schools and classrooms. It's really nice to see. Um, it's really nice to see young people express themselves at a young age, and then have adults in their lives who are willing to cultivate that kind of space for them, um, because that's something that you know I, you know I I did not have when I was growing up.
0: I think that detail is so important because we hear a lot of stories of, of people who are in your position that that had that kind of supportive home space or had siblings that were kind of, you know, role models for them. And so to, to hear your story of, you know, not necessarily having those support systems at home, but you still um, pushed forward and your creativity and, and have come to the space where you are now, I think it's very valuable. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you ended up where you are now. So you're a teaching artist, you're an actor, you're also an activist and a visual artist. What, were some of the stops along the way that brought you to your current role
1: well I definitely had a roundabout way of getting to where I'm at now (laughs) um I you know my parents god bless them uh they're west Indian immigrant you know Haitian immigrant parents very strict um the careers that were presented to me, not just from my parents, but from my extended family overall, um, were doctor, lawyer, engineer. And and I grew up with those three options, you know, um, juggling whether I'd be any of those things. And I remember going to college, I um, majored in psychology, and how I landed in psychology was that I could be a doctor, I could be a psychiatrist, um without having to see blood all the time (laughs) and that was my rationalization for uh and I took an AP psych class in high school and I liked it so that was my rationalization for majoring in psychology um and I did that for two years and then I took an abnormal psych class and um I had so many questions about about medication and prescriptions and diagnosing and overlapping symptoms and um, prescribing the wrong medication for let's say depression. And I just didn't get a sufficient answer from my professor. You know, it was like kind of uh, if one drug doesn't work, you try another one. And I just didn't, I felt like that's just too much pressure to play with uh people's brains that way um and it clicked in me um that i should change my major (laughs) um i also had an english professor at the time i I got an a plus in her class she said i should be a writer um i had other english teachers throughout my life uh, who said i should be a writer my eighth grade teacher said that my ninth grade teacher said that and um I thought to myself, I could either major in music, art, or English. And I, I chose English um, because it was the most practical thing I could explain to my parents. <laughs> and uh, I remember um, going home telling my, my dad, I changed my major from psychology to English. And he said, oh, well, what are you going to do with that? Uh, be a teacher. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be a writer. And he said, why would you just want to write? <laughs> and my parents had a had a hard time um, dealing with the idea of me only being a writer and, and not uh, going into education. They thought if she's majoring in English, naturally, she's going to be a teacher. Um, and I think I carried that with me uh, past graduation. Um I I never majored in education, but I I ended up uh, teaching high school uh, English, high school ELA, um, while I was in grad school, and I went to grad school to get a master's in Africana Studies, and I told myself, well, you know, if I'm going to teach, I want to teach Black Literature. Um, But I didn't I wasn't exposed to enough black literature growing up and I thought, let me get a degree, you know, and uh, figure out the things that I'm trying to understand uh, about the literature I want to teach and so. But still, I think teaching was my way of explaining to my parents, I'm going to grad school to get a master's in Africana Studies, because that was another thing I had to explain. What is Africana Studies and what are you going to do with this degree? Um, And teaching was my explanation. And then I got a job without um, it just kind of happened that way you know, in a kind of like a serendipity type of way. I was asked to send my resume into this charter school and I got hired. Um, problem with that was that I was doing, at by the time I was teaching, I was getting two master's degrees. I was finishing two master's degrees and teaching ninth grade full-time as a first-year teacher, which was intense to say the least. Um, and So I, you know, I didn't give teaching a fair shot because I was doing too much. And so I had to leave. And I worked in a nonprofit for a very long time and really loved that job. Um, But again, there was this struggle with my parents. Why are you still working at this job that you had before you graduated grad school? Um, Maybe you can move back home and get a job in teaching. And so I was like, well, let me try this one more time because, I didn't really give it a fair shot with going for two masters. And I did, I taught middle school. I I went back to teaching high school and then I taught middle school. And one day I was just, I was, I mean, I was dragging myself to work for a while. Um, And one day my co-teacher, you know, she shut the door after all the students left the room and she said, you know, are you okay? And I, it's like, I, I am struggling to come to work. <laughs> I don't really want to be here. And then she gave me this beautiful story of when she was a kid, um, all she wanted to do was be a teacher. And, you know, she mm-hmm. just lined up uh, stuffed animals and, you know, this is this was her dream. It was a, you know, great, amazing story, touching story. And by the end of it, I said out loud, that wasn't me. When I was a kid, I wanted to write and it was just a big, like, I, that was the moment I think I really accepted that, um, I didn't really enter teaching because that was what I was passionate about. I entered it because of, uh, things I needed to pa- unpack with my family and pressures I felt about pursuing this line of work, instead of what my heart was telling me to pursue in the first place. Um, And now, now they get it. (laughs) Now my mom brags to people and says, yeah, my daughter's a poet, you know, and like, okay, it took, it took them a long time to get there. And it took me a long time to get there because I was um, so focused on them instead of focusing on me.
0: Yeah, I think that that story, I mean, it resonates with me because it's, it's my story in a lot of ways, too. When we are in these kind of creative fields, especially for us, as like Black people. And I know that you're also the child of immigrant parents. Like, there's this expectation that we're going to continue to move forward the race in a lot of ways. like it sounds kind of heavy, but, you know, you're not going to move forward Black people by being a poet. You know, no one's going to say that to you, but that's the energy, Right hmm. Yeah. So, so many of us kind of squash our creativity, or we call it a hobby, or we say that, you know, this is just something I do in my spare time or something that I like to do instead of like being able to actually pursue it. Because we don't really see those opportunities for ourselves. Whereas, you know, our white counterparts have like a different kind of upbringing. So I'm wondering what it was like for you as a black woman, as a child of immigrants to declare yourself as an artist.
1: Um, really freeing, like really freeing. I used to say all the time, I write poetry, you know, and, or I, I paint, you know, <laughs> I'd say the thing that I do um, but I wouldn't call myself a poet or call myself an artist. And I think there's there's some energy behind that. And um I when I started calling myself a poet, I was like, okay, this is this is just it just carries a different weight for me personally, um, because I'm owning my journey now. And I'm, I'm very intentional, more intentional about, um, the language I, so I put into, uh, what I do and, um, what I want to put out into the world. Um, and as a black artist, you know, that's an empowering thing, uh, because we're, we're reclaim, we have to, like, we're trying to reclaim space that's been taken from us. Right. And. And on top of that, um, we're trying to navigate all these other spaces um, that are not necessarily creative, you know, just trying to navigate life really. Um, and, and, and do that in a way that um, is, in, for me, I wanna do it in a way that's in service to the world, but also is very intentional about um, who I am, um, what I value, um, and what I represent. I, I've, I've always been intentional in the way of, you know, I'll go into a classroom with my fro completely picked out, you know, because I want students to see my hair uh, completely picked out so that they can, I know I've had girls, black girls come up to me and say, oh, wow, I love your hair. I didn't know I could wear my hair like that you know, and be in front of a room talking to people. Um, And that's like a really freeing thing, you know, to be the, the visibility that I wanted to see when I was a kid.
0: Absolutely. And I love that you use that word reclaiming because so much of, you know, this art is a part of who we are as a people, but a lot has been taken and a lot has to be reclaimed. And so I'd, I'd love to hear your take on what you would like to see as far as this landscape of visual art and poetry and literature in general looks like in the next few years. Like, I know that there are safe spaces for people of color to express themselves, but when you go into a classroom, a lot of times what's being taught is still the literary canon, right? Which is mostly dead white people. Um, <laughs> so what what are your hopes for, world of poetry and for the world of visual art as far as you know Black people are concerned?
1: I think um I think people have a real opportunity to tap into poets who are alive uh poets who um students can relate to because they're talking about things that are happening right now Um, and that's not to write off all the other poems that have been taught you know I think there's a balance you know and We've been missing the balance for a long time. Um, I get excited when a professor says, Hey, I put you on my syllabus. You know, the year that that happened, I said, What? You put me on your syllabus. (laughs) And they wanted me to come talk to their class after they've read a few of my poems. And um, I think more teachers, uh, more people in uh, spaces, where you know young people are are being educated in any way have the opportunity to, you know, bring in, um, bring in art and poetry that's happening right now and and there's so many texts out, you know, there's so many chapbooks and there's so many books of poems, um, by really exciting writers that you know, students can really see themselves in the literature that they're reading, you know, and, and everyone can find a piece of literature that, you know, is is something that represents, you know, their background or where they're from, um, or something they can relate to. And bringing, bringing poets into the classroom, you know, doing the work of a teaching artist is gratifying in that way, you know, because they can see, oh, you know, this isn't this art form that's, Um, antiquated and I can't really I can't understand poetry and I don't know it doesn't mean anything to me once they hear some poets in the classroom it, it just kind of flips it upside down oh I didn't have no idea that poetry could sound like this and I didn't know I could do this with language you know and that can that when that happens when that switch turns on it's really exciting to see Um, see them develop their own, their own work.
0: Yeah, I, I love that, that the focus is also on artists that are alive, artists that are speaking from the era in which we're living in. And again, that's not to discount anyone that came before, but it's all about balance, right? And right. it's amazing the first time you find a poet that talks about things that have happened to you. And, you know, that's not to say that you shouldn't look for other viewpoints as well, but if you're looking to get people interested, they want to see themselves within the work. So it's important to present those, those models and to have people come into a classroom and say, you know, I'm the person that wrote that book. And you have two books under your belt now. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what it was like to to get your first book published and, and what that process looked like for you.
1: So I self-published both books. Um, the first one was it was a hard thing to do. <laughs> you have this dream and you say, I'm going to self-publish. And and I didn't want to um, publish through Amazon. I wanted to, or another publishing, self-publish. There were like a bunch of self-publishing platforms that I was looking at. And I thought to myself, well, I really want to like learn this whole process and what it means to write the book uh, format the interior, um, get a cover, all of those things, and then uh, order prints from a printer. So I wanted to like become my own publisher, like really become my own publisher. And um, and so that's what I did with Dreaming in Creole, and that was my baby. Like I really took a lot of time to figure out what poems um, I wanted to have in the collection. And uh, the most poems that I had were about my Haitian heritage. And so that's where I landed, as far as like what the, that was my process in figuring out what the theme or um, what I'd be talking about generally in the book. Um, The second book was a whole different process in that I wasn't sure. (laughs) <laughs> I was writing a lot of poems I, pu- I published Dreaming in Creole in 2015 and said the swing to the hoop my second book uh came out in 2019 so they have a space of four years and I think I've been I was writing a lot of poems in that space of four years and just didn't know what the se- what the second book would even be um but I also was writing a lot of poems that I was afraid of. And what I mean by that is, you know, I was unpacking a lot of trauma um, and I had to make a lot of decisions about what poems I wanted to release into the world and whether I was ready to do uh, to do that and what that would mean um, with family reading my book and, you know, all those other questions that I did not have when I was writing uh, Dreaming in Cradle*.
0: I know exactly how you feel because I I have some poems that may never see the light of day while certain folks are alive. So that's a real struggle for um, artists. In general and you know I also kind of want to talk a little bit about you mentioned when you were writing the second book that you were dealing with a lot of trauma and I know that for a lot of people writing is a wellness practice for them, but when you start opening up those old wounds and like really moving through a lot of the darkness. you may need something to counteract the writing. So what are some of the things that you do to take care of yourself outside of your artistic endeavors to kind of provide balance for yourself?
1: Well, I love gardening. Um, It's just so peaceful to have my hands in the dirt and to plant things and to watch them grow and then to eat from what I've grown. It's it's just, it's a... it's a very therapeutic process for me um so gardening is definitely a a gift in my life um other thing that i've done i've also you know gone to counseling and therapy um and i always encourage people um to do that if you need to um because some things writing just can't do for you you need to have somebody uh, who's trained in the field to listen and understand what it is you're grappling with. Uh, so I I have done counseling, um, and I I think standing in the sun is amazing. <laughs> I don't know what it is about standing in the sun, but having the sun on your face, um, I'm smiling just thinking about it. Uh, and I like to. I like to listen to music. Uh, music is, has a way of taking me to um, another place. You know, music is a, mu- a mood changer. Uh, so I definitely uh, listen to a lot of different music. Um, and then I'm, I'm into candles, lighting candles, burning sage, um, and sitting in quiet you know, there's something about sitting in quiet for me. I don't know if it's because I'm an only child, but yeah, sitting in quiet is uh, something that I enjoy doing. Uh, So yeah, that's, I think that kind of sums it up. And I read, I read a lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that that reading is is important for writing, but also it's a way to like unplug as well. Um, And all of those like wellness practices are so accessible. And you know it's again we we come to the page to kind of face our demons and we can think that maybe that's the last step and really you know maybe you do need to sit down and just have some quiet time after you write something really heavy or maybe counteract it with some music or sitting in the sun so i love i love that the list was of things that are incredibly accessible <laughs> um so I would love, if you're up for it, um, if you could share some of your work with, with our audience so they can hear um, some of your poetry.
1: Sure. Um, I'm going to read a poem called "Tucson," And then I'm going to read a poem called The Girl Dream. And they're both in my second book, uh, Set the Swing to the Hoop. So this poem is Tucson. In middle school, I remember reading Toussaint Lourette's biography, not at school, but from my father's library, and so what it was in French. didn't matter that I didn't understand it all, long as I understood revolution and freedom and IET and Black, and somehow I was all of those things, even if at that age when I put bobos and berets to rest and listened more intently to the blood between my legs, I was unsure if I had revolved around anything or if I was free at all. But I knew IET poured through me like a libation, and I was Black like an eraser, slowly clapping out chalk. And Toussaint wasn't just in this book. It was the last name of my first crush. Black like me, Haitian like me, and I remember the gap in his teeth when he smiled. How he was the darkest boy in my class. How I was the darkest girl in my class. Felt like we made part of the same mud wanted to shape us into something beautiful. And of course he should have liked me back. All black girl, kinky curl, and sauce boy. I was supposed to taste like home. So of course he was supposed to like me back until sixth grade when Carla, I think was her name, carried a woman twice her age and her chest how the nuns had to always remind her to button up her shirt, how the boys drooled. And seventh grade, when the goddess Athena came to our school wrapped in butterscotch with Brooklyn on her breath and hair that blew in the wind, and I never did like me until we sat next to each other in eighth grade, and he could see all my answers. Poor boy didn't know that even if he didn't love me, he loved my mind. And it was the first time in all those years I realized without the words to articulate it just right that maybe I didn't like him at all. That maybe I just wanted a part of Tucson I could call my own. That really I was looking for my own reflection. And all the while she was who I loved when the boys didn't come home. She was who I loved all along. And this poem is uh, called The Girl Dream." The girl dreamed, and the girl called into a room, three boys and a girl, the girl, the only girl, and my grandpa asked what they wanted to be. And the girl, bright eyed, chest out, back straight, clear voice, said, lawyer. The girl, made of riverbed and dirt road, fried plantain and piquies, coal fire and cast iron pot, said, lawyer. Not two weeks later, my grandpa pulled the girl out of school. Sent her to learn how to sew and cook. The girl supposed to be a boy's dream, not dream like one, not supposed to be a lawyer or bold or big or speak loud or speak. The girl skips sewing class, use pocket change from gun tissue to buy fresco and watch people walk on shut without anyone knowing. The girl, a protest, the girl still dreaming in view of the presidential palace. The girl becomes a woman, becomes a wife, becomes my mother. My mother carries three girls and a boy, like the tethered, like a reckoning. I am the only child to survive the terrain of her womb, the only girl, the only dream left. My mother immigrant, my mother night school and wrestling Creole on her tongue, my mother lover of coconut flesh and peanut brittle, my mother loud, my mother sacrifice, my mother first lady of the church, my mother housekeeper for a living, my mother mathematician, making a dollar out of Angu, less than 15 cents. And one day she taught me a lesson in a white woman's bathroom. Pointed to the toilet she just cleaned, said this job in particular and overall is not for you. Says you could be a lawyer. Translation, be a lawyer. Translation, does not matter that you are a girl. Translation, I am her dream carved out her stomach from her cooked hands aged from fire and bleach. Her back, a wall crumbling, her kidneys passing stones, the weight of all her deprivation, a field of hives on her skin, a sting piercing back.
0: Wow! Like I, I know no one can see me, but I'm like just over here nodding my head, like thank you so much for that. I'm like thank dumbfounded you. right now, which is not a good thing since I have to keep talking. Um, I love how much of your authentic self is present in every word. And, you know, I think it's so important for artists to feel like they have the space to express themselves fully. Um, And I'm wondering, like, what words of advice you would give to someone who has been facing the page and has, you know, voices in their head that's telling them, what they should say and who they should be and and what would you say to that person who really wants to express themselves but has kind of been boxed in
1: i want to tell people that the voices get quieter over time um and you kind of have to write through them um because I've, I've had those voices you know, shouting in my ear, you know, who do you think you are? You really think that you're a poet? You know, are you really going to call yourself a writer? And um, I get like that, I've gotten that imposter syndrome. Uh, but, you know, I, I had to keep writing through that process. Um, and that's the best thing that you can do when, a voice is telling you that you can't do something is to keep doing the thing that you're not sure you can do keep trying um that's something that helps me and um I think like people there are the people who are the naysayers or you know they they present this negativity or this negative light on whether or not a dream can actually happen. But there's also the people who are rooting for you. Um, Anytime there is somebody who, you know, at my open mic, if they're going on stage for the first time, they've never read a poem out loud in front of an audience ever. And they come to me and they're like, I kind of want to do the open mic, but I'm not sure. And I said, you know, I always say the audience is rooting for you. Um, and I try to create a space where we are rooting for everybody who gets on stage because it's important. It takes a lot to put yourself on the page or to express yourself in any kind of creative way. Um, it's a very vulnerable, uh, you know, process to do that. And, and I, I try to, you know, support that, uh, support people being vulnerable, but also supporting Uh, supporting the energy around them, you know, surround yourself with people who are rooting for you, um, and, uh, people who can give you constructive, uh, feedback, you know, um, and it, it's, 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 it has a a foundation of, uh, growth and love behind it, um, because, you know, there are people from my teenage years that, they just didn't make it to <laughs> the friendship circle now, you know, and there, there are people from, you know, 10 years ago who didn't make it to my circle now. And, you know, I have to be really protective about my energy. And um, the other thing that I've done is I've been very uh, protective of my dreams. Um, and, and what I mean by that is I, I don't share them until they're ready to share. And and the reason for that is because, you know, I have had experience uh, saying something out loud that, you know, looks like, you know, this faraway dream and I'll say it out loud and, you know, someone will say something back that negates what I just said. Um, And I don't want that energy. I want to speak things into existence over my life that are powerful and that, are life-changing and that are freeing and for me to stay in that I have to protect it um so I I don't I usually don't share new dreams with anyone um except maybe my partner Robert um until I'm absolutely ready to share it
0: yeah boundaries boundaries are so important and I think you know even for young people just understanding that you may be in a classroom setting where you have a teacher that isn't supportive of your work. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with what you're doing. It just means that that's not your audience. So, you know, pushing through and having clear boundaries is, is important at every stage of life.
1: <laughs> every stage of life and like everything, you know, it doesn't even have to be um, in terms of writing or making art, you know, boundaries are just really good to have in any setting.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the best wellness practices we can have is like clear boundaries. Um, And it's an evolving thing. (laughs) I will not claim to be an expert. Um, So I do have a bit of a curveball question for you. um, But what is a question that you wish people would ask you? Oh,
1: sometimes I think people focus so much on, um, writing tips or writing process. Um, I usually never get a question that is about some quirky habit I had as a kid (laughs) or something, you know, um, and I think that's just the nerd in me that wants people to ask, uh, I guess I, for lack of a better word, nerdy questions about uh, me as a person. Um, Cause I think those are like the fun questions. Uh, like in my bio on my website, the last sentence says that I like to visit used bookstores, eat pistachio ice cream and think of ways to change the world. I love the pistachio ice cream part because it has nothing to do with you know, poetry or art or anything, you know, it's just this detail about me. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes we can look at people, um, even though, you know, they might be working in the, the capacity that they're in, like it, you know, they're here as a poet or they're here as an artist. And so the, the questions are overall focused on that. But questions that remind folks that I'm also, you know, a human just like them. Um, and I have things that I like and I have pet peeves and, you know, so yeah, quirky questions.
0: Yeah. I love that. Um, you humanize yourself for them (laughs) so they don't put you in a box. Um, so now I'm over here, like wheels turning, like what's a quirky question I can ask her. Um, like what's your favorite cereal?
1: Oh, wow. What is my favorite? Oh, you know what? I really love Apple Jacks
0: growing up me too i love apple jacks (laughs) i think apple jacks was like the underdog cereal everyone either (laughs) wanted frosted flakes or cinnamon toast crunch but apple jacks were delicious
1: i like cinnamon toast crunch too but i really loved apple jacks um and i wasn't a big fan of frosted flakes (laughs) but i mean that's just me but yeah apple jacks definitely the cereal
0: Fair enough. Yeah, I'm definitely on team Applejacks as well. So, Danielle, tell us what you're working on right now. Where can we find you?
1: Um, Well, people can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Poet D. Collin. And I'm on Twitter uh, as well, even though I don't necessarily understand Twitter. (laughs) But I'm on Twitter as Poet at Poet D. Collin. Um, and then I'm decolin on Facebook and, but people can find pretty much anything they want to find out uh, about what I'm doing or working on or uh, find videos and content on my website. And my website is decolin.com. D C O L I N.com. And that's really where everything is. Um, what I'm working on right now, I. I've been teaching virtually. Um, it's been you know an adjustment throughout the pandemic to try to work as an independent artist um, in different ways. So uh, for the past couple of months, I've been uh, te- I've been doing my workshop work, but uh, through virtual classrooms. And actually it's been helpful to do it virtually in, in the sense that I get to go into more classrooms than usual um and that's been mainly my focus Uh, i just had a big art show earlier this year and i'm starting to get into painting again but i took a break from painting after the after the art show um and then i might have a book (laughs) maybe
0: Right on. And are you still running a Poetic Vibe as well?
1: I am. I am running Poetic Vibe. Poetic Vibe just turned five this month. Um, And I'm really excited that um, the community is still meeting on Mondays uh, to uh, read poems, share poems. Um, That's also happening virtually on Zoom. And... I'm not really sure when that's going to happen again in person, but right now it's been happening—it's been happening in Zoom for the past uh, year.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. So we'll make sure all of your um, social media links and your website are in the show notes. So if folks want to check out what you're doing, they can find you there. Um, and I, I hope there's a book coming. <laughs> um, and if there is, then people can keep up with you on social media and find out about it there as well. So thank you so much for doing this with me. Um, I really wanted to have a Black woman poet on for National Poetry Month. And I uh, I think that this was fantastic.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: It was so great to talk with Danielle about her work as a poet and an artist and just an amazing person in her community. I think that so many of us look to the arts as a way to find wellness and healing. And so it was really important to me for, I'm gonna say it again, Poetry Month, um, to bring in a poet, someone who truly is doing amazing work to represent not just black women, but to also like provide spaces in her community to give people a safe space Mm -hmm to express themselves um so i'm not gonna ramble i hope that you will check out uh d collins work i have put all of her links in the show notes so please 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 check out her website um I know that her open mic is over Zoom now. So, if you are a poet or an aspiring writer and you want to check that out, you can do that now um, just from the comfort of your home. And um, if you are someone who appreciates the written word, check out one of her books um, and just go out and read some poetry this month and, you know, give yourself that gift of art. Um, And with that said, I'm going to let y'all go. I will see you all next month for the next installment of Black Women in Wellness interviews. And until then, be safe and be well.